You are now entering the transit zone. Welcome back to the Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Margaret Kingston in Narang on the Gold Coast. And Tim Dunlop in Southbank in Melbourne. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which we record this podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and the Yugamba people of the Narang District. We pay respect to their elders. Tim, Margot, great to see you again. How's it been going? I'm just sort of sitting back watching the end of the world <laughs> in, in the US and the end of the Victorian Labor Party. You just got a feeling of end times. For me, the hope is what will emerge from the ruins. Well, I'm still locked down. Tim, you know that I'm well locked down here, still getting deliveries of food, etc., scrubbing them when they come in. But I did go to our local boutique bakery yesterday for the first time since mid-March, since the lockdown started, all gloved up with a mask on. I might say in High Street, Northcote, near where I live, I was the only person in a mask. Nobody else was in a mask. You could have looked around and you wouldn't have even thought it was coronavirus world. Everyone was bustling around, social distancing. No. So I went in and got my bread and uh, a seasonal Danish, beautiful, and an almond croissant for my partner, beautiful. So that felt like an adventure, Tim. It was weird. Yeah, I know what you mean, Peter. I'm really happy that today we've got Michael Ryan on because one of the really strange features or interesting features of this whole lockdown period and the coronavirus period has been to recenter food in my life in different ways, changing eating habits, including going out, but just cooking more at home and doing a lot more, you know, preparing stuff and, and keeping it for later, freezing sauces and making bread, all of that sort of stuff. We did actually go out to a restaurant the other night, which was the first time since all this happened. We went to the French Brasserie in the city of Melbourne. It was interesting. It was like, it was sort of buzzing, but they'd spaced the tables. The menu was reduced, but it was still good quality stuff. It was not the usual service that you would get at a restaurant like that. I'll be really interested to hear Michael's views on how he thinks all this is going to change. Well, let's bring in our guest. Michael Ryan is our guest in the transit zone today. Michael is the owner of the Provenance restaurant in uh, regional Beechworth and was voted Chef of the Year in the Age Good Food Guide in 2013. He's facing what we're all facing, but in a very specific way, with the restaurants closed until quite recently. Michael, welcome to the Transit Zone. I rang your restaurant and I heard on the message machine that you're open Friday, Saturday nights. Is that right? Uh, we've just changed that. We're now doing Thursday to Sunday. So four nights. Previously, we're always a five-night operation. I don't think I'll be going back to five nights. I hope not. Take us through it. Describe what it was like just running a restaurant in Beechworth, then the coronavirus hit. I guess you were looking into the abyss almost straight away, like all hospitality, like the arts as well, which we've talked about on this program. Anything depended on people gathering in the same space. So take us through that scenario. We're actually just coming back out of the uh, bushfire of January and we lost all of our bookings in January, all of our accommodation bookings, all of our restaurant bookings. I spent a day just taking cancellations. And I'd certainly done that before with other bushfires. We've been through them before. I didn't expect to be doing the same thing like two months later. So when coronavirus hit, basically we, obviously it's quite a different scenario because everybody was involved, the whole country. And yeah, we just obviously cancelled everything. And from March, 22, 23, we no longer had a business. That's what it felt like at the time anyway. 
Michael, as you know, I follow you on Twitter and you've been doing a bunch of tweets lately in response to all of this. I just wanted to pick up on a few things that you've said. Restaurateurs have never been in a position to be more prescriptive about their business model, to do what is necessary to survive, to do things on their own terms, a time to create a restaurant that is simpler with less moving parts but also be better for it. It's a really interesting comment. I would imagine the hours were horrendous, et cetera, but maybe talk us through a little bit about, you know, the basic economics of a restaurant, the way you use food, how you budget to maximise getting the best value from any given product, avoiding waste, designing a menu around that sort of food productivity, how all that becomes simpler with less moving parts. I mean, restaurants are always generally quite good at utilising the produce they're using because it's a it's a financial situation. You want to try and minimise your wastage, but in any restaurant there's always wastage, particularly if you're doing a la carte. A la carte is a more expensive option. It's a less sustainable option. There's just more wastage. You can't avoid it. We've always done a la carte and a set menu. We've now just moved to purely set menu, which is something I've always wanted to do but was probably a little hesitant, a little worried about losing customer numbers, I guess isn't an issue at the moment because we're pretty limited in the numbers we can do. And it's just such a much more sustainable option for, for our sort of restaurant, basically. We can cater for exactly the number of meals we need to do on any given night. At the end of a week, you know, we'll try and avoid it, but you'd always have to get rid of a reasonable amount of food. Last Sunday, I looked at what we were throwing out at the end of the night. It was like half a small two-litre bucket of produce. So it's a much more sustainable and better financial option. Are we permanently changed about what people will want that's different when they come back? And will people want the works now or will they want something different? What do you think the psychology of COVID virus world is to the future look and feel of of restaurants and, I guess, purpose? Yeah, I think at present people are just happy to be out. The feedback we're getting from the customers and the general atmosphere from the customers is one of a real excitement just to be out again. Mm. Uh, having said that, I've talked to friends in CBD who've got restaurants and it's it's a lot different situation in the in the city. Things are still really, people are still hesitant to come out. People always seem to see the country as a slightly safer option. And that was the case just before the lockdown. We still had lots of people coming up to the country, whereas the city had pretty much self-closed at the moment, people are just desperate to get out. But I think sort of midterm, what people are really wanting is that kind of wine bar pub experience, which they still can't have. That's not really an option with our current restrictions. So that sort of camaraderie and that, that sort of communal buzz that you get from those sort of establishments, I think, is what people are really missing. But not yet. Tim, you're a lot braver than I am, I've got to say. Neither my wife or I would dream of going to a restaurant at the moment. And I've got to say, Michael, that I agree that it's it's about the buzz and I agree that it's about people wanting to get out and get social again, but it's all about trust. I have to trust you as the owner of that restaurant. And my mind goes to what's going on behind the scenes? What are you doing with your staff? What's your infection control like? All that sort of stuff. How have you had to step up to that side of the business? Obviously, restaurants are always good restaurants. <laughs> restaurants that you want to go to are a particular about their um, hygiene and their cleanliness. And yeah, I guess it's just another layer on top of that. And there's no denying that restaurants are 
medium to high risk environments. And I think ultimately most of that risk comes from being in a room with circulating air with other customers. So yeah, I mean, the restaurants can do all they can to minimise, but it still comes down to that contact between other people if you choose to go out to a restaurant. What have you made of the Italians? Many Italians I've seen on television have been putting little glass booths around each and every table. They've been constructing those during the lockdown. I also saw in the Netherlands the waiters turning up with long boards, also into little pavilion tables, and putting the, uh, the dish on the end of the board and sliding it onto the table. All those sort of tactics. What do you make of all that? Yeah, I mean, that's probably the extreme example. And in Australia, we were certainly less impacted, so we probably have less of a fear about the virus. Our previous set menu was, say, an eight-course menu. And even at an eight-course menu, you've got a waiter coming to the table at least probably 18 times. So we had to look at how to minimise that. So we're doing like a four-course menu with lots of small dishes, kind of borrowing from the Japanese kaiseki format. So there's a lot less interaction between the waiters and uh, customers, which is kind of antithetical to hospitality, but that's where we are at the moment. There's been a lot of talk about people rediscovering the joy of cooking themselves and and the joy of home entertaining, growing their own vegetables and caring more about where the food comes from. Do you see any impact on demand and also any impact on what people are, uh, want in terms of where you source your food? Well, I guess that's always been a key part of our restaurant is where we get our goods from. And we're always particular about both telling our customers where they're from and also trying to get them as local as possible. That hasn't changed all that much. It's always been our sort of one of our guiding principles. In terms of cooking at home, I think it's great that people are cooking more at home. And I think the idea of dinner parties making a comeback is a, yeah. is a really positive thing. That certainly but, happened to me. Yeah, but but restaurants aren't aren't about going out for food as such. They're more of a they're a social construct really. So the food is obviously an integral part of that. But I think that's part of the emphasis on chefs. You know, is probably unproportionate to what a restaurant really is. Michael, I don't know if you've noticed some of the writings in, say, like the New York Times. Of course, New York City's been hit hard. Their restaurants, some of their legendary restaurants. And I'm seeing articles about the yearning to be back in those environments. I'm seeing articles about the theatre of food, the theatre of the restaurants. Dreams, you're selling not just food, oh, you're selling, you're in the experience economy in a way, mm. aren't you? And there is a bit of theatre, there is a bit of getting together and performance, not only on your part and, your, and the waiters, but on the part of the clients in the restaurant. Do you see it that way, that it's, it's a whole package, not just about food and the sourcing? There's something more ineffable going on here. Yeah, the whole package. So, you know, the feel of the place, down to the music you play, customer interaction. I mean, most restaurants, at, I guess, at our level in Australia, are constantly fighting against not making the place too serious and too fine dining. It's that kind of Australian relaxed attitude, but still with high levels of service and quality. That's the balance you try and achieve. And your point about the customer's involvement in the equation is often one that's not highlighted that much. So it is an interaction. So you, you do need some feedback from the customer. Sometimes you get a customer who is like a sponge and they just give nothing back. <laughs> they can be quite <laughs> tough. 
Michael, somebody I think you know, Tammy Jonas. Mm-hmm. Tammy describes herself as an Ethicurean farmer and meatsmith. Interesting branding. She lives on about 69 acres just outside Dalesford here in Victoria with her husband, Stuart, and three young adult children. They raise heritage breed black pigs there on the farm and speckle cattle and butcher, cure and cook on site. Tammy is clearly a food production activist, as you'll hear. I caught up with her yesterday. Tammy, welcome to Transit Zone. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be here. When COVID hit, where were you at and what changed? I was in Rome. I was there for UN meetings on the post-2020 global biodiversity framework when Italy was hit. It had started in China earlier. I'd already had another trip planned to China, was was cancelled by the FAO. And by the third or fourth day of our meetings, they were temp checking us on the way into the FAO buildings. And by the day before we left, we were terrified that Australia was going to shut the border before we could get home. As I went through the Rome airport, it was completely deserted and like I'd never seen an empty airport before. And the planes were empty. And I thought, wow, this is this is really serious. I can't quite believe what I'm seeing. So what changed on the farm? We had a couple of negative impacts. We use waste stream feed for the pigs. Some of that is brewer's grain from a local brewery. But their main market is actually selling kegs to pubs. Overnight, they stopped production. And that meant we had no more waste stream brewer's grain. And at the same time, our whey supplier also shut down his cheese making. We lost all our waste stream feed literally overnight. That was a bit of a shock to the system. We were lucky we had a, a stockpile of, of silage that Stuart had been in siling for a few weeks just to prepare for the slowdown. Then we had to make the decision to buy in some pig pellets for the first time in three and a half years. And we were just going into what is our workshop season because winter is when we run all our workshops since it's butchery and outdoors. That couldn't happen. Suddenly, we found ourselves with a lot of time on our hands, actually, and I couldn't travel. You know, I do a lot of international travel for the Food Sovereignty Alliance and all my meetings were cancelled. We now have a house cow. We're milking her every morning. We built her a little milking parlour. <laughs> the paddocks have never been so organised. I've commenced a PhD. <laughs> so the thing that's happened is our rhythms are really gentle here and we're very, very organised and quite happy, actually. But the conversations we started happening immediately were this is going to make the local food movement stronger. People are going to find that the things that we've been banging on about for years, about the fragility of long supply chains and a globalised food system, they're going to fail. Those who can supply their food locally are going to succeed. The one side of that that didn't prove to be true was some farmers markets were shut down by risk-averse councils or even risk-averse organisers. That was just madness as we saw it, given that they are definitely an essential service to provide food and far safer than the inside of a supermarket. We were having the disruption the capitalist system needed for people to understand its flaws and how we could make a different relocalised economic system, especially in our food system. Tammy, reading some of your material online, it strikes me that one of the key aspects of it all, it's about scale. It really is. For the farmers in the small scale sort of movement who supply directly, we saw the ones that were in that medium sort of size, you know, bigger than my little farm, who were supplying restaurants and wholesale channels. They were really hit hard by having to, as everybody loves to say these days, pivot 
to supply households directly instead of the food service industry. Fortunately, what we've also seen, though, is the likes of Open Food Network have been of enormous value to those farmers and brought them on board very quickly so that they could find the market for that slightly higher scale of, of produce that they have. Some of them, though, as a result, because they're getting a better profit margin by selling directly to households rather than through wholesale, are able to now descale a bit. They're actually shrinking their places a little bit. Those of us who were small were the least hard hit, for sure. To what extent do you perceive our becoming much more aware of the source of our food, the source of our produce, and no longer anonymous and abstract and amorphous? I know where my free-range eggs are coming from precisely at the moment. Do you see that as something that's growing, and will that stay with us? I think it's definitely growing. The pandemic has made people's awareness of the food system even greater, and their, and their fear of the bits of it they can't see. I think is growing because of things like this. And so for me, I'm really interested in whether those of us who are activists in this space are being active enough to keep amplifying the stories that are explaining to people where the risks have come from and why they should be choosing food from different sources where they have the opportunity to. The growth of the local food movement is happening really quickly right now because of people turning to reliable sources of safe and clean food. The virus is going to be with us for quite a while, they're saying. And If you look at what's happening in places like America, it's a lot worse than it is here. Across Asia, they've lived with these sorts of things for 20 years. The original SARS and MERS in the Middle East as well. So other parts of the world have been living differently to us for much longer because of having faced multiple outbreaks. I don't want that to be part of our daily reality. I would love to live in a world where I don't have to wear a mask to go to the supermarket. Well, I don't go to the supermarket, let's say to the pub. (laughs) The grimness of this situation, I hope, helps people maintain a commitment to doing things differently. But let's go back to the causes. Where did this come from? Okay, I don't want to participate in the causes of these things. I want to see this never happen again. So I'm hopeful that people are prepared for a different normal, whether they're equipped to, like whether they have the skills and access to the the food that they would like to be eating, that remains the, the question, I guess. And can we, those of us who've been trying to build a new food system, have we built it fast enough for them to desert the old one and come to this one now? Tammy Jonas, small farm producer and obviously a food production activist, uh, including on the global stage. And by the way, Michael, she said to say hi. Yes, she's been to our restaurant a couple of times, actually. So Tammy not only was talking about food production, but also tying it directly, really clearly to the emergence of pandemics, the emergence of human diseases from highly industrialised food production, including with animals, animals around the world. And we know about the wet markets in China, etc. Do you think, though, she's being overly optimistic in perceiving and imagining that when things settle down a bit with the coronavirus, that people will be more intent on knowing about the source of their food? Yeah, it really does come down to demographics and who you're speaking to. There is a really serious core group of people who are passionate about where their food comes from and ethics and how the animals raise, how the plants grow. But then there's uh, probably a bigger demographic of people who are just really just feeding themselves. That comes down to price point, but not only price points, a completely different way of looking at what you're eating and how you're eating. So that's certainly changing. That that group of people who are really into the provenance of their food are are a growing market, I guess, but it's still it's still a niche market, unfortunately. 
Tim, you and I are both using the same egg supplier at the moment. I guess a wholesaler, in a sense, they're supplying the food industry. They're supplying restaurants, bistros, clubs, etc. around Melbourne. They crashed out when COVID hit and we got online and we get our eggs from them. And Michael then talked about price point. In fact, we get 90 free range eggs at a time. It's quite cheap. It's only about six bucks per dozen. So price point isn't the only aspect, is it? And you're, you're using them. How are you finding them? This is another thing that's sort of changed in how our household kind of looks at food. We've been using a few services like Bird Eggs, the the company that you're talking about, B-U-R-D. They also deliver frozen pasta, fresh pastas, sauces, etc., etc. We've been using another local one associated. We live near South Melbourne Market and a number of the traders up there have got together and produced a thing called Food for Good. They sell some fantastic stuff, you know, frozen ragus and pizzas and delivered to your door, you know, at a fairly reasonable price. I mean, part of our logic was to be supportive of these local businesses. And as I say, that's another way in which the way we do food in the house has changed. So even though I've probably increased the amount of cooking that I do at home and food preparation and maintaining a bigger supply of food in the freezer than I would have traditionally, we're also using these these shops that have, as Tammy said, pivoted to to home supply rather than restaurant supply. Michael, I know that Provenance went online with some products as well. How's that been going for you? We make sugo every year and we were making sugo just, it was actually quite a late tomato season. So we were actually making sugo after the lockdown. So then we thought, well, perhaps if we're making, because and I don't use it in the restaurant, it's not my style of cuisine in the restaurant, but we use it for home and staff meals. We thought, well, why don't we make some more? So we ended up doing about 400 kilo of tomatoes, bottling it all and selling it. And then we thought, well, why don't we increase? And so we created a pretty extensive line of, mm. of, of produce for um, our provenance grocer, put it on our website. And we sold, I mean, we were selling about 2,000 a week during April, May, which is pretty good for a little store. And I didn't do any advertising except for social media. And that died off as soon as things opened up a bit. But it's probably something we'll always keep. We might scale it back a bit in terms of how many items we have, but it's certainly something we're going to be continuing with. I mean, we've always had this smoked miso butter on our menu for years. Right. Everybody said, oh, you should put this in a jar. And I've always went, nah, why would I do that? <laughs> anyway, it's now in jars and selling quite well. So, But you're a manufacturer now. I mean, that's huge, isn't it? That's <laughs> Yeah, it's... That's fantastic. Like doing it, it makes you realise like to actually make your own products and put it in jars and sell it is possibly even more labour intensive than running yeah. a restaurant. It's it's pretty pretty tough. <laughs> so uh, and also you're competing against stuff in the supermarket jars. So you're not really competing because it's a different, completely different product. But there's always that price comparison going on in people's heads. You know, like if you've got a restaurant and an online thing and an, and things you can buy at the at the restaurant, it's sort of a it's a completely different vibe, isn't it? It's it's pretty exciting yeah, well, in a way. That's one of the things that has changed now on the table as well as the menus, we have our list of all of our grocery items. And, yeah. you know, we've only been open for three weeks, but not a night goes by that somebody doesn't finish their meal and then buy some, some products. So, yeah, it's certainly a, a, a good add-on. And it's something we, I guess, had always thought of. But mm. when you're in midstream with a business and it's hard to find the momentum and the energy to create 
a new arm of your business. That's what the lockdown gave us the opportunity to do. Michael, you heard Tammy talk about scale. And it was interesting what she said about some of the farmers who were medium scale Mm -hmm. started selling directly to households rather than through the food industry and the wholesaling network and were able to get bigger profit margins and then scale back a bit. How do you perceive that? They were the growers and farmers who were really hit hard, the ones who were specialised in selling directly to restaurants. Obviously, their market disappeared overnight and they didn't have the networks to connect with you know, the domestic customers. So that was their their task over the lockdown to try and find those connections. And I think some of them did it quite successfully. I was talking to a, a farmer. He he doesn't sell directly to restaurants, but he's a small beef farmer. And he was saying that during the lockdown, prices for all lamb and beef were the highest they'd been for ages. And the loss, it, this is talking about primary producers, like the really big mm. producers, the loss in... Um, in sales from restaurants and cafes and everything else closing was more than made up by the sales to domestic households. Yep. So people were actually buying more food than they would normally consume yes. in a restaurant. So Meat sales just went through the roof in supermarkets. Yeah, yeah. and those really yeah. big sort of factory processes did quite well, but those small, medium guys, they, they really struggled. And same with restaurants. I think restaurants that are a much a bigger entity, usually because they got greater costs, they got higher rents. Some of those are are struggling a lot more than the small family-owned places like ours. We fortunately had very little debts, and as soon as the lockdown happened, we made a point of paying all of our creditors, and then so we're in a pretty good position to reopen because we didn't have any serious debts. Tim, something you said earlier caught my ear about cooking at home. Do you think, all of us, that food in our lives has changed perhaps forever through coronavirus world. We're cooking differently. We're eating slightly differently. We have a different attitude to our food now, partly, I guess, because we're seeing it come to the front door and we're very aware of what we're buying, perhaps less reflexively buying now. But cooking at home has changed too. I'm just wondering if it's just us or is that a more common thing that's going on through the society? To the extent that you can judge um, through listening to how people react on social media, Partly out of necessity, I guess, people have been doing a lot more cooking at home and, and maybe being a bit more adventurous in the things that they try. Not not adventurous in the sense of turning into Michael Ryan or something, but maybe trying to cook bread at home. And um, it just occurs to me, Michael, as I say that about hearing all this stuff on social media, that you're reasonably active on social media, but I don't think you use it to like as a promotional tool so much, certainly not Twitter. With the rise of social media, there's also been the rise of um, what are generally called influencers or, you know, non-professional reviewers. With a destination restaurant like The Provenance, I I presume you've crossed paths with uh, these sorts of influencers. What's your sort of relationship with the use of social media? Those influencers generally city-based, so we're three hours from Melbourne, so... It's not a trip they take very often. But I have to say restaurants are part of the equation in terms of the whole influencer. We feed them basically, you know, we literally and also, you know, figuratively we feed them and that's why they exist. But, you know, I never make a point of offering free meals. In fact, we had a a guy in, he just did a post on Instagram and they stayed the night. They paid for their meal. They paid for their accommodation. They didn't even say hello or say who they were and then did a very positive post on Instagram. And I looked up and they've got 105,000 followers. That's a responsible influencer, I guess, somebody who pays their way 
and supports restaurants and, you know, does it because they're interested. In the way that the mainstream media, so professional journalists, cover the food industry, etc. And how important is that sort of ecosystem of awards like the Age Awards and Michelin Guides and, and that sort of stuff? How, how does that all figure into your business? Oh, look, the award system is still, it's still pretty helpful to us. Being a small regional country restaurant, we really can't survive on local trade, so we need people to be visiting us. And obviously not as high profile as they used to be, but they still have quite an impact on our numbers. And in terms of the reviews themselves for those mainstream media, they are changing as well because you can get a somebody went to a restaurant, this is what I ate, this is what I drank, this is my score, anywhere you want on the internet. So what you want from those mm. journalists is something with much more depth and something that tells you something you don't, wouldn't possibly know about the restaurant, giving a bit of a backstory and just just a lot more complexity. Some of the reports coming out of the United States, particularly out of Florida, which as you probably realise, COVID is really surging in that part of the world. But of course, in America, they've got a different attitude. There's a lot of denialism there, it's still being called a hoax, the coronavirus pandemic. But apparently by law in Florida, if in fact, say, your staff within the restaurant uh, test positive for coronavirus, you're under no legal obligation to let your customers know. Now, here's a scenario. What if one of your staff tested positive for COVID-19? What's your next step? What do you do? Well, actually, that's that's the biggest fear for any business at yeah. the moment, I think, because, I mean, we would be we would be closing down for however long it takes for people to isolate and then for the restaurant, you know, deep clean. So it would be pretty big impact, probably, I reckon, a bigger impact than the initial shutdown because, yeah, I think it'd be, it, there's a, there'd be a lot of, there's still a lot of stigma attached to it as well. So, yeah, it'd be a tough one to survive, I reckon. I mean, you'd try, but it'd be tough. Very tough. In fact, just down the road here in Eaglemont, a little village, there's a bar there called Eagle Bar. March 14th, I think it was, they ran a birthday party with some UK visitors. You can tell by the date, it was just at the beginning of all this. The staff got COVID from these visitors and the band, the house band, had a music teacher who then took it to a school. You probably heard about the school. That's how quickly it happened. So the, the transmission is remarkable. Mm. So that bar, right at the beginning of all this, they really copped it, had to close down. So it's not only restaurants, it's the bars, it's the little bistros, etc. as well, isn't it? It's that whole restaurant hospitality industry that are, are really facing all this. Do you think if, say, more restaurants encounter this in any part of Australia, but particularly in Victoria for you, that's going to just ripple back to you and to the restaurant industry generally, that that trust I referred to earlier is going to be diminished again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, if it becomes more commonplace that there's any uh, transmissions in restaurants or any outbreak resulting from restaurant visits, I think that will impact everybody. I'm guessing it's in everybody's mind, but people seem to sort of just live in the moment sometimes and so when they're out for dinner I'm noticing even now it's not it doesn't seem to be a, a concern at the forefront of their mind. I know it doesn't really affect you because you're top end but do you have any thoughts about the fact that Australians are both overall poorer and inclined to save <clears throat> that there could be a, a significant reduction in restaurant numbers as we come out of this? Yeah, I certainly think in the, in the urban areas, in the cities, certainly the uh, inner city, or people are working from home now, and so a lot of the offices aren't as busy as they were. 
suburbs, outer suburbs. I think they're doing better than they than the inner city stuff. And then the country, like yes, we've you know obviously in a uh, recession, but it's kind of possibly counteracted by the fact that we can't travel overseas. So anybody looking for travel for a getaway, yeah, their, own, their only option is regional. And I, I, people still might travel over to another city when they can, but I think at the moment regional travel is seen as a you know, the only option if you want to get away. Our accommodation the last two weeks hasn't been this busy for a very long time. Looking into the future, how do you truly feel about your prospects? The menu I'm doing now, it feels like the menu I've been working to for years, but was possibly a little hesitant to do. So we're really happy with what we're doing now. It is a simpler restaurant. It's a smaller restaurant and there's less choice. And I think that's what the customer will have to get used to for some time is less choice. Our Western society choice is kind of king sometimes, but at the moment that won't be an option. And what we're offering is, we think is probably the best we've done. The lockdown gave us a choice to create a whole new model. There's no way we're going to go back to what we're doing beforehand because, I mean, there was a downturn of business in 19. It was a pretty tough year for restaurants. It was becoming less and less viable for us. And so this new model is certainly more viable. We'd like to do a few more covers if we could, and that will change, I guess, as restrictions lift. But we're not going to go back to the size we used to be in terms of the number of covers. We're going to do less covers, but, you know, more more detail. Like I said, people will be travelling to the country. So I think for the next at least, I'm assuming, six to 12 months, it will be, it'll be kind of boom times for regional travel. Stay with us, Michael, because... What we like to do in the transit zone is just check amongst the zoners what they've been doing, what they've been reading, how they've been listening on television to music. Uh, Tim, what have you been into the last week? I'm about three quarters of the way through a book called Why Australia Prospered. It's written by an economist called Anne W. McLean, um, who actually just died recently. It's a book that's been on my radar for quite a while, and it explains the somewhat surprising ongoing prosperity of a nation like Australia and talks about the various reasons for that. My real interest in it is that I think it's actually a much more valuable book in this day and age than, say, something like The Lucky Country, which people still constantly refer back to and use that, you know, expression, The Lucky Country, which was always meant ironically. Maclean's book is in a similar territory, I think, but a much more current and deep look at Australian prosperity. And I think it's a really good book for all Australians to read. It's very accessible. I saw that. I saw you tweet that, and I'm going to have a look at that one. I've already downloaded that, so I'll be diving into that as well. We'll swap notes later, shall we? Michael, I know you're a very busy chef and facing rebuilding that business, but if you had time for a bit of recreation in the books, the music, Music I'm really getting into, have in the past, but really more so now is Betty Davis, Miles Davis' wife, and just her music from the Columbia years in 1969. I just can't stop listening to it. Books, uh, I'm reading a very dry uh, book on koji. Um, Koji's the mould that grows on rice that is used to make sake and soy, (laughs) particularly because uh, we're in the process of setting up a sake plant. I just got the grant yesterday, so setting up a sake plant in Beechworth to make sake in Beechworth. Kind of interesting because I applied for the grant and we weren't successful because they um, said it was for existing business, not startups. And then we got a call from Agriculture Victoria, which isn't who I did the grant with, so obviously they moved along. 
yeah. and rang up last night at like 7, 7 p.m. I said, ah, oh, we want to give you the money now. Went, okay, sure. Oh, oh you yeah. notice how Michael kept the best sake till last? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, look, I, I don't know about you guys. I've been noticing, I don't see much advertising on television, but it pops up on SBS quite a lot. Have you noticed how much advertising is completely infused by the coronavirus world now, you know, either they're branding themselves as very careful, very caring of their customers. Virtually every bit of advertising now is COVID advertising in Ooh. some form or another, whereas the big conglomerates like a BHP saying, we care a lot about you. and Peter, about- Peter, we're all in this together. We're all <laughs> in this together, don't you know? And obviously there's a lag in terms of production of adverts and so forth, but most of the ads through the lockdown were obviously made pre lockdown and it was lots of people you know cavorting and hanging out together and it <laughs> looked so naive and wrong was, yeah that's absolutely true the other thing i've noticed is that my wife and i've been really wanting a good laugh at night and and getting on my ipad and get, trawling through sbs trawling through netflix looking for some real yuck yuck comedy not the dark comedy that's mm, everywhere yeah. and of course satire is inevitably about trump or covid-19 <laughs> or whatever i'm finding it really hard to find a good yuck yuck comedy i don't know about you guys very hard i just want to laugh you know we all need to laugh occasionally even in the midst of all this i can't find much it's not much there it's dark dark all right so getting back to dark this doco this pbs doco on four corners on monday has had more impact on on me than basically any doco I've seen in 15 years. It's about artificial intelligence, the emerging new Cold War between the US and China on artificial intelligence. Basically, you know, we all know about the surveillance state with our our corporations, you know, Google and Facebook finding out everything everything about it and targeting the advertising and targeting the the political advertising, etc. But what China's done is first of all, they've decided that they want to lead the world on it and they've basically come up to parity with the US in five years. But secondly, they've got all their billionaire companies, etc. but they all feed in. Every Chinese person basically pays with their phone. Every bit of information is put into this weird algorithm which comes up with what we're doing is we're algorithmically profiling people. And what China is doing is they don't need hundreds of thousands of secret agents running around. They do a profile deciding whether someone is at risk or not. The extreme of it is with the Uyghurs, they do all these profiles and the ones they think are risky, they put in the concentration camp. And the ones outside the concentration camp know they're being constantly surveilled, so behave themselves. So basically, this is artificial intelligence is a way to completely control your population and avoid dissent. China is now exporting this to countries, including in Africa, so that dictators can do the same. I tell you what, it made me want to get off the grid. But In China and in the way it's developing, you can't get off the grid because you can't pay for anything except by card, which is tracked, etc. And we all know in coronavirus world, I know it's illegal, but quite rightly, a lot of businesses aren't taking cash and maybe it's the death of cash. So it's the death of the ability not to be uh, surveilled. So I just found the whole thing the computerization of the human mind and the and the way this is being used. I must say, after I watched it, I thought, China has won. They've just won. Like, you know, our last chance was for the Western Alliance to get together and say, behave yourself or, or else. And due to Trump and, and other factors, that's destroyed. But I was also talking about it to a, an old friend of mine who um, was very, very senior in government. And she said, look, you know, take out the human rights and you've got to say 
that China has a vision, has a strategy, has a process, and is actually wiping the floor with the West at the moment. Because somehow, over the decades, we have lost the ability for long-term planning. And the epitome, of course, now is that used to be leader of the free world, Trump, who literally does everything according to the motto that he would like to win the news cycle today. It's a mind-blowing documentary done in that PBS style, like straight, you know, talking to people on all in all different sides. And I don't know if I highly recommend it or not, because it's it's pretty scary. But I think AI is the new Cold War, and I think we, we all better get our heads around it and start thinking about it. And to add to that, Margot, of course, Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton's book is about to hit bookshops and for the excrement to hit the fan yet again. I don't know if it'll have any effect on the election or have any effect on Trump. He'll just do his usual stuff, won't he? And well, I mean, his the cult point about, will just try and suppress it. But the point about that, Peter, is that we all know that he's a mate of Russia. He's pulling out troops from Germany as we speak. We now know that all the stuff anti-China is just a, a shroud. What John Bolton reveals is that he said to President Xi, look, these tariffs you've put on agriculture is hurting my re-election chances. Could you take them off and help me win the election? And I'm starting to think, okay, you know, what the Trump thing's about is let's have an alliance between us, Russia and China and and Erdogan in, in Turkey and, you know, the kleptocrats can, can get everything. I mean, like, it's it's so screwed. It's so effing screwed. End of rave. Michael, on that delightful note from Margot, I think I'll, I think I'll go and make some scrambled eggs yeah, now yeah. in your honour. Michael, it's been great to have you yeah, in the you. transit zone today, really, and I hope it helped people just uh, think about food a little bit more, right back to basics today. Michael Ryan, thanks so much for being with Thank us you. in the transit zone. Cheers. Thanks a lot, Michael. So what's next in the transit zone? Well, just that little issue of the environment, climate change, and future energy use here in Australia. Georgina Woods is an environmentalist and a poet. She's worked in paid and unpaid environmental activism and advocacy and against the causes of climate change for about 20 years now. She's currently New South Wales coordinator for Lock the Gate Alliance, advocating for communities in New South Wales affected by coal and gas mining. That will be our topic next with Georgina Woods here in the Transit Zone. If you'd like to keep up with the latest here in the Transit Zone, just follow us on Twitter at Transit Zone Pod is the handle at Transit Zone Pod. And you can write to us, of course, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We're planning a new series of podcasts here in the Transit Zone on working from home in coronavirus world. If that's affected you or is still affecting you, particularly you and your family and your friends, whether you like it or hate it, let us know by email. Transit Zone Pod at gmail.com or you can send an audio or we could record an audio for you but just let us know your thoughts your comments your opinions about working from home so you can be part of that series on working from home in coronavirus world transit zone pod at gmail.com thanks for being with us again in the transit zone this time i'm peter clark for the transit zone team tim dunlop margot kingston and we'll catch you next time right here in the transit zone You are now leaving the transit transit zone. zone.